Well, when I was in my early 20s, I had the chance uh, to attend Dallas Seminary right out of college and started when I was 22. And what a blessing that was. The Lord certainly used that uh, in my life. I didn't know at the time that I would end up going on and uh, continuing my education uh, even beyond that. But I had a lot of fun experiences in uh, seminary and a lot of different jobs to try to work my way through seminary. I was determined not to have to come out with any debt or loans. And so I, I, my first year I worked as a, uh, at a warehouse loading trucks. And then uh, my second and third years, I was really blessed because I got kind of the coveted job among uh, students there. And that was I got to work for the Dallas Mavericks. Now, if you're not a sports fan, you may not know this, but the Dallas Mavericks are an NBA basketball team from Dallas. And even though I'm a Cowboys fan in football, I wasn't a Mavericks fan in basketball. We, were, we grew up being Rockets fans in Houston. But still, wow, to get to work for an NBA organization, uh, you know, was really uh, quite, quite exciting. Now, typically about this time, people will ask, well, what did you do for the Dallas Mavericks? And that's when I like to say I was a backup point guard, which, of course, you know, nobody would ever believe. No, uh, the interesting thing was the owner of the Mavericks at the time was a Christian, and he had some connections to Dallas Seminary. And so he always reserved one job for seminary students in the production team for the, uh, the, the broadcast team that broadcast all the home games for the Mavericks. And so um, that role was called stage manager, and uh, you didn't have to know anything about you know, AV or technology or anything, you just the fact that you were a, presumably anyway, a Christian at Dallas Seminary uh, was enough qualification. So it was kind of learning on the job. But my role for two years for the home games of the Dallas Mavericks was to sit right at midcourt beside the play-by-play and color commentators, hand them cue cards to, to say during breaks and short timeouts and dead ball timeouts and stuff. I would go uh, at halftime and uh, find a uh, what they called a VIP in the stands. Uh, maybe the mayor was there or maybe some other famous person was there and they would do a halftime on-camera interview. Uh, if during one of the breaks the uh, producer in the truck said, we want to go on camera with the announcers, then I'd have to let them know, make sure their hair was right and the, the cords weren't hanging down in front of them. And uh, if there were people behind them, you know, being foolish as people tend to do, I'd have to put a stop to that. The funnest part was that, though, after the game, the post-game interview, there was a studio at the, at the stadium there, and after the game, they would always interview one of the Mavericks, and I'd have to go into the locker room and tell, find them and say, hey, can you come to the studio? We want to uh, interview and mic them up and all that. And it was, uh, it was quite, a, quite a thrill for me. Now, again, I wasn't a Mavericks fan, but I got to see a lot of great players who came through uh, playing for the other team. But one of the things that I learned over the two years doing that was that uh, there's, a, there's kind of an underworld or underside to uh, professional sports, at least the NBA and I assume all the others, because a lot of the visiting players would get there. I had to get there really early on game day for the production meeting and kind of get, make sure we knew what we were doing. And the bus would show up, and this was back before cell phones. And so, sadly, one of the first things some of the players would do would be get on the pay phone right outside the, in the downstairs underneath the stadium by the locker rooms and, uh, and set up their dates, if you will, for after the game. Uh, they would uh, – uh, I would also see, like, waiting outside, typically a whole crowd of people 
sometimes they'd be there even earlier than I would, and I'd have to kind of put, work my way through the crowd uh, to get in. But they were uh, they were groupies waiting to see their favorite player who showed up in his Porsche or whatever and got out, parked, and walked into the to the stadium to get ready for the for the game. And they 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 often wanted to you know get a picture or get an autograph. Sometimes they wanted to just give them a hug. I mean, they, groupies are an interesting uh, bunch. Uh, of people. It seems like groupies really, they want to have some contact with this superstar, this famous uh, person, personality that they've only seen on TV. Uh, sometimes these groupies would literally follow them around, like they would be groupies for someone on the visiting team. And I guess they had nothing better to do, so they would follow the team around. If they were playing in Dallas this week, and a couple days later they might be playing in LA, or they might be playing in Boston, or wherever, and they'd follow them around and just uh, really want to be close to them. Sometimes they wanted something from the fan. Like I said, maybe they wanted an autograph or a picture. But as I was thinking about our subject at hand this morning, which is praise and worship, it occurred to me that being a groupie is a form of worship, right? I mean, you, you're following the one you idolize so that you can be near them and you can get something from them. And, and here's the point. As we're going to see this morning, God is looking for groupies. Did you know that? The Bible actually said God wants people to be in His presence and to come and to worship Him. God wants people to come and ask Him for something. And that's our subject uh, as we continue our look at the model church, we have one more week to go after this week, and then we're going to move on into chapter three. And I was taking a glimpse at that, uh, and I uh, can't wait to get to the, the great story there in chapter three of Peter and John and the, the lame man that's healed at the beautiful gate, one of the first things that we see happen in the early days of the church. But we've got two more characteristics of the model church that we want to look at, and today we're going to spend the whole time talking about worship. Worship And in John chapter 4, which we will come back to here in a moment, I want to look at that a little more closely. But here Jesus said, But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And notice, the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God wants worshipers. Uh, he doesn't need them. I mean, He's God, right? But the Bible tells us He wants us to worship Him. So I'm going to do two things this morning, and we're going to review the focal passage in Acts chapter 2 and kind of what the early church looked like and see where it talks about this idea of praise and worship. But then I want to talk about worship and answer two questions. What is worship? Let's come up with a definition. And then how do we do it? How do we worship uh, the Lord? So, so far we've looked at 10 characteristics of the model church. And all we're doing is we're taking a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 7, the first church there in Jerusalem after the church was founded on the day of Pentecost. What did it look like? We understand that the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive, but we can learn some things from the way they did church. And then uh, hopefully you've noticed as we've gone through these that we're also looking at other portions of the New Testament and showing how this characteristic is indeed something that the church is expected to do and commanded to do and uh, something that should characterize uh, the church today. So we've drifted quite a ways from the model church from the first century, but uh, there's nothing that says we can't at any time begin to shore up our 
mission and vision as a local church and uh, try to represent each of these characteristics uh, better. Now, I happen to think that uh, Palm Creek Chapel, and I've been in a lot of churches, as you know, through the years, uh, really checks most of the boxes. I think we're, we're, we're spot on in the way we're doing our best to be biblical and to represent uh, biblical ecclesiology and, and do what the church is supposed to do. But the church at large in the world today really is failing miserably when it comes to uh, what the church is supposed to be. And that's why we're taking a look at these characteristics. So we talked about baptism, community, doctrine, fellowship, the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate that today. It'll be our first opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper since we talked about it from Acts chapter 2. Um, and we'll say more about that when we do that here in a few moments. Uh, we talked about prayer, reverence, unity, benevolence, and joy last week, those three. And uh, today we come to this idea of praise and worship. Uh, praise and worship, number 11. Uh, it's a timeless characteristic of the church. Of course, praise and worship didn't start with the church. God's people of all ages have always worshipped Him. But we see that it was a key component in the early church. Verse 47 says the early church was praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So that word praise is a unique word in the New Testament. It's the word aineo. It's used nine times, only nine times. And by the way, uh, seven of them are by Luke. So it's one of Luke's favorite words in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, for praise. And it means to speak in praise of, which is why we typically translate it praise, but it also means to glorify. That's the nuance uh, there. All nine times that this word is used in the New Testament, it has God as the object. I mean, you can praise other things, and there's also a, you know, a form of praise in the New Testament that's praising others, you know, and rejoicing in others. And, uh, but this word, aineo, has to do with praising and glorifying God himself. And as I was looking at the times that this word occurs, it was interesting because almost every time, in fact, every time but one, I was, I was really getting excited because I was thinking all nine times this is the case. Uh, but there, there was one where it wasn't. But eight of the nine times it has to do with a significant event in the life of Christ. So I don't know if you, this excites you, but just indulge me, if you will. So the first time we see this word come up is in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 2, in the occasion of the birth of our Savior. And remember, the shepherds were out in the field. They received the announcement, and then it, the text tells us, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God. So here on the occasion of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, the angels were glorifying God. In fact, what did they say? I don't have it on the screen, but glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. So that's the first occasion. And then as we read on in the birth narrative here in Luke chapter 2, we see Luke use this word a second time when he says, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. So again, he didn't have to use the word glorifying but because it, it's somewhat redundant, it's implied within the word praising, but it just shows you the significance of this idea. So the praise of the angels then translated into the praise of these shepherds who were just glorifying God that the Savior uh, had come. And then we read on in Luke's gospel. You get all the way, you know, Jesus grows up. He begins his Galilean ministry, and over his three-and-a-half-year ministry, he comes 
to the last week of his life, which Luke has the, the most detail about the last year leading up to the cross. In fact, Luke chapter 9 to 19, the biggest bulk of his gospel, is all about that one year, the final year. And you get to chapter 19, and it's the triumphal entry. And look at what we find as Christ is riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It says, as he, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. The same way the shepherds praised God at his birth, the disciples were now praising God at what they thought was going to be his coronation, his crowning king of kings and taking the throne and, 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 and throwing off the uh, oppression of Rome and the Roman Empire and, and that the kingdom was going to finally come. Of course, we know that uh, the, the uh, uh, cries of Hosanna, Hosanna, as they laid down the palm branches within a matter of days, turned to crucify him, crucify him, and they nailed him to a cross. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day, and he's promised to come back. In fact, uh, we see in uh, Acts 24, the last uh, occurrence by Luke anyway, I mean in Luke 24, the last occurrence in Luke's gospel, where at the ascension, this is the very end of Luke's gospel, the last two verses, in fact, of the whole gospel, and, and on the occasion of his ascension, when he promised to come back, we see them praising and blessing God again. They worshiped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So we see praise at His birth, praise at His triumphal entry, praise at His ascension in hope and promise of His return. And then we see this word used in Acts in chapter 3. We've already read where Luke says that characterized the early church. They were praising God. But in the passage we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, we see uh, the lame man at the beautiful gate who was healed by Peter and John. Remember, uh, Peter said to, to him when he was asking for alms, he said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So once again, uh, this and, and the text then tells us, he stood up and walked into the temple, walking, leaping, and praising God. And why not? Because through the name of Jesus, he had just been healed. And notice the contagious effect of that. All the people saw him walking, and they too praised God. Both times in these two verses, it's that word, I know, praising God. And then it's used one time by the Apostle Paul when he's quoting from Jeremiah, uh, and it's praising God. But the last time that it's used, the ninth time, which I find fascinating, is in the book of Revelation. And it's from the chapter we looked at in our 9 o'clock hour in the context of the destruction of Babylon at the end of the tribulation when the Antichrist and his uh, satanic regime is destroyed at the coming of Christ. And it says, And a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God. I know. Glorify. Praise our God. All you, his servants, and those who hear him, both small and great. And indeed, what an what, what a occasion of praise that was, as the, the satanic tyrant, the Antichrist, is destroyed, and Christ comes back and takes the throne. So now we see this word used at his birth, the birth of Christ, the triumphal entry of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and in conjunction with the return of Christ. So that ought to give you a little glimpse at 
what worship is. Worship is all about Christ from beginning uh, to end. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, worship is, uh, is more than a song, <clears throat> as I, I know Jeff has mentioned before. Sometimes you think of a service traditionally, especially in American evangelical churches, you know, you've got the service segmented. And you've got this part, you know, the announcements, and then you've got this, and you've got the worship time, and then you've got the sermon. Well, first of all, as we're going to see, worship is not only corporate, it's personal. So you can worship God, you know, from a deer stand. You don't have to be in a corporate assembly on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. But not only that, the whole service is worship. So we worship in song, as we just did. We worship through the teaching and preaching of God's Word. We also worship through giving. We worship through the Lord's Supper. We worship through prayer. It's all about worship. But a lot of people have tried to define worship in, uh, in different ways. <clears throat> what is worship? Well, that, uh, that sometimes theologian, I like to call him, who probably should have stuck to music rather than theology, Bob Dylan, <laughs> He said, quote, a song is anything that can walk by itself. And if you think of worship only as music, then, then, that's, then you're going to have this mystical idea about worship, that it's expressing yourself through song. But that's only part of it. And it's by no means mystical. It's rooted in the reasons that we have to praise God. And it's all about Christ. Someone defined worship this way. Worship is a meeting between God and His people. And I think that's true, but that's not all that's true. Uh, because prayer could be defined as a meeting between God and His people. Uh, so what does the Bible say about worship? And to answer that question, I want to turn uh, to John chapter 4, the passage I looked at a moment ago, in this fascinating encounter between uh, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And this isn't our primary text. We're taking these 12 characteristics of the church from expositionally from Acts 2, 40 to 47. But as we talk about this 11th characteristic of the model church worship, I could think of no better passage uh, to springboard from for some principles about worship than John chapter 4. So let me read this fascinating story. If you haven't read it in a while, as I had not until this week, I I'm sure it'll It'll really encourage you. So John is writing here in chapter 4, and he says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Verse 6 says, now Jacob's well was there. Now Jacob's well was a very famous well in the Holy Land, very well known. It was still around uh, by the first century, even though it had been several centuries. It was widely considered the deepest well in the area. And in ancient Near East, people's wealth or status was connected to the number of wells that they had. And uh, they didn't have all the materialistic things that we're so blessed to have in our day. I mean, it was enough to have food and water, and the more stable and deep and number of wells that you had, it just showed that you 
you were in good shape. You needed them to feed your cattle and feed your and, and, and provide water for your servants and so forth. But this is where this encounter takes place. So Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, and more evidence of the humanity of Christ, sat thus by the well. It was the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now, what's the first problem with that? Well, you've got a Jew speaking to a Samaritan, which never happened, right? In fact, uh, we're going to see uh, that she reacted to that. So Jesus says to her, Give me a drink. And then Luke tells us, I mean, John tells us, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And they didn't. Uh, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, John is, in, in his gospel, is commonly uses these types of stories and, and Jesus himself as metaphors for belief. And in John chapter 6, for example, Jesus is going to talk about eating the bread of life and drinking the living water as metaphors for believing unto eternal life. And so Jesus here is shifting the conversation to spiritual matters and saying, you know, if you recognize who I am, you know that I have the power to give life. So the woman didn't get it. And in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She didn't understand. He was talking about spiritual things. And he doesn't have a bucket. How is he going to get the water? She goes on, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. You can almost see him motioning toward the well. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. In Revelation 21.6, remember the Bible near, near its conclusion talks about whosoever will let him drink the water of life freely. So again, that's a metaphor for believing the gospel, believing in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save you. Well, now the woman, you know, he has the woman's attention, the Samaritan woman, because he's talked about everlasting life. And so the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. You know, it'd be great if I didn't have to come up here several times a day to get water. Count me in. Give me that water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Now what's going on here? Why, why the sudden shift in context? Well, Jesus has been trying to get across the spiritual point of who he is and how he can save her. And she keeps missing the point. So he needs a way to get her attention and, and let her know that he knows about her sinful condition and he knows that she needs a Savior. So without coming right out and saying, you're a sinner, he just shifts the conversation to the fact that uh, you know she clearly had a sin problem. 
So the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Typical reaction when you're caught in sin is to lie. And Jesus said to her, You've well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Well, now the woman is starting to get it. At least she understands she's dealing with someone that's not your ordinary Jew. And she's, the woman said to him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She knew things about, he knew things about her that no one could have known, certainly not some stranger she'd never met. So she wants to validate, is this prophet for real? He seems to have knowledge. He's got knowledge about me. He seems to be an esteemed prophet. Let me ask him an age-old riddle that has uh, <clears throat> puzzled prophets for a long time. So she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. In other words, who's right? Answer me that riddle if you're truly a prophet. And Jesus said to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, you meaning her and the Samaritans. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Meaning the, 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 sal the messianic line of our Savior, as Matthew details, comes through the Jewish ancestry. Salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, Jesus goes on, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. The verse we read a moment ago. He reiterates, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman then said to Him, knowing that He's talking here about some future event, the hour is coming, there's this Messiah coming, she says to him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, <coughs> he will tell us all things. And then finally, Jesus cuts right to the chase. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I mean, it's a fascinating encounter, uh, so much going on there, and and we learn a lot about worship from that encounter. And as we saw with our survey of the use of the word, I know it's all about Jesus. I am the Messiah. I'm the one talking to you, right? And then uh, John, the gospel writer, just kind of leaves us hanging in terms of the rest of uh, the story. So what is worship? Well, let's, let's take a closer look at this passage and draw some points. First of all, the most reverent place to worship is right where you are. Um, I mean, this woman was at a well drawing water, you know, outside. And yet, it was a place of worship. You know, worship is not about a building. You know, uh, in some religions, it's very much about the building. And in the Old Testament, the, the physicality of the building had a corresponding representation to the truth about God and His coming Messiah. As the book of Hebrews says, those were shadows of things to come. But even they were just shadows. And 
you know, as Jesus told the Samaritan woman, you know, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you're going to worship. And as Stephen said in his famous speech in Acts chapter 7, which we'll get to in our journey through the book of Acts, he said in his speech, the Most High does not dwell in a temple made with hands. See, the most reverent place to worship is right where you are. Now, we're blessed, as, as many churches are, to have great facilities, comfortable facilities. We can come together at Plum Creek Chapel in the winter when it's cold, and we're going to be warm because of those two thermostats on that wall over there, right? Uh, in the summer, if it's hot, we're going to be cool and comfortable. We've got padded seats. Um, soon we're going to have a nice paved parking lot that will make it easy to, to, easier to park. But this place, as nice as it is, there's nothing sacred about it, right? It's a means to an end. It's a way for us to fulfill the mandate of God's Word that the local church should assemble itself together. And we want to do that in a, in a way that makes it uh, conducive to all of these characteristics of the church that we need to do, fellowship and joy and prayer and praise and teaching the Word and so forth. Some local churches throughout the world don't have that, but they still are local churches and they still meet to fulfill the function of the early church, of the New Testament church. They may meet outside. They may meet in tents. They may meet in homes. Um, but what we need to understand is whatever may come, if the Lord tarries is coming and we continue the trajectory of oppression and uh, persecution of the church in our country, we may end up not having a place like this to worship. But it doesn't mean we can't worship, right? Uh, it, it, the most reverent place to worship is, is right where you are. The second principle I think we can see from Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman is that worship requires knowledge of the Savior. I mean, we've already made that point abundantly clear because it's always in the context of our Lord, His birth, His triumphal entry, His return, His ascension, all of those things. Um, but it requires a knowledge of, of the Savior. When the American hostages came back from Iran in 1981, the first thing they did when they got off the plane was kiss the ground. Maybe you've seen uh, video images of that. Uh, no matter what achievement they had gained as military servicemen and women, what star they had earned, when they hit the ground from Iran, they bowed down, home sweet home, and they kneeled down and, and, and their lips touched the tarmac. They knew where they had been and they knew where they were now. And it made a difference. You want to know why people don't worship? I think it's because they forget where they've come from. Or maybe they don't know. It's just a ritual for them. But a lot of people don't worship because they forget they've been hostages in Satan's territory and they were set free by the blood of Christ. And in order to really worship, we have to have that understanding of who we are and who Jesus is, that He's our Savior. See, that's what Jesus told the woman, you Samaritans, you've got it all confused. We know what we worship. We know who our God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And uh, they knew that he was going to send a Messiah. I mean, we could go back to Psalm 2 and uh, the, the eternal sonship of Christ and his future coronation as King of kings and, and Lord of lords. They knew. And, and worship requires a knowledge of the Savior. Number three, there's no place for hypocrisy or pretense 
in worship. Worship is sincere. It's organic. It's natural. It's instinctive. Right? It happens not because you plan it, but because it just flows naturally. Um, Jesus said, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, which is to say there's a type of false worship. Um, people worship a lot of different things, like those groupies I talked about. They may worship some athletic superstar. People might worship uh, their job, their house, their whatever it might be. Some people worship their children, right? Um, but true worshipers worship God. And uh, you, there's no place for hypocrisy or pretense or ritual in, in worship. Number four, God is the only object of true worship. Uh, God is the only object of true worship. Uh, sometimes you'll hear a fellow say, you know, I worship God on Sunday mornings on the golf course. But he's actually worshiping golf on God's course <laughs> because the only object of worship is God. Now, nothing wrong with playing golf on Sundays. I'm not legalistic. If you have an opportunity to go do something else on Sunday, that's fine. We're not, you don't get any extra years in heaven because you have perfect attendance record on Sunday mornings. Okay, uh, It's about the attitude. And if, if God comes second, in general, that's the, bad, that's the wrong attitude. God has to come first. And as we are going to see in a moment, you can worship God in many other ways besides just corporately. But corporate worship does need to be a part of it because that's what the New Testament uh, tells us. And as we said at the beginning, God is seeking people uh, to worship Him. And then the, the last uh, point under what is worship is just the heart of man and the Word of God are central to worship. Twice Jesus says God uh, is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean exactly? Well, I can tell you from my travels and my experience in, in ministry for three decades now that I've been in some churches who are uh, really extremely knowledgeable about doctrine. They know the Word of God and they can dialogue with you about the finer points of theology. But you go to their worship services and it's just dead as a doornail. There's like no spark there whatsoever. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those churches that if someone died of a heart attack in the middle of the service, the EMS would haul off like six or eight people before they found the real dead guy. I mean, it's just not living at all. And, and then, of course, on the other extreme, you've got those that are energetic, enthusiastic, vibrant in their understanding of the spiritual side of things, very expressive, but they're not well grounded in the Word. They're all over the map when it comes to theology and doctrine. And I think what Jesus is saying is there's, there's a heart aspect to worship and there's a truth of the Word of God aspect to worship, and you need both. Um, my uh, home church pastor used to say, if a church has too much emphasis on the spirit and not enough on the word it will blow up if it has too much emphasis on the word and that is possible by the way and not enough emphasis on the spirit it will dry up but a church that has the right balance between the spirit of god and the word of god will grow up and that's what we want to do
So spirit and truth. So how do we worship? Well, I'll, I'll close out by addressing uh, the, the method of worship. Now, one of the things that we need to understand, we're talking here, of course, about the local church, characteristics of the model church. So we're largely talking about corporate worship. And corporate worship has changed a lot in 2,000 years. And I think one of the most divisive things that churches struggle with is this notion of change culturally. Uh, but uh, what I'm here to tell you is that the, the actual look and feel of the corporate worship, the entire service, and specifically the praise and, and worship part of the songs, can look very differently even in our own day, tw- the year 2022, depending on where you are. And if you worship in, in Russia or you worship in Peru, uh, I mean, are the Peruvian worship services identical to what we do in the way they do things? No, of course not. There's cultural differences, language to be obvious and, and speak of one. Uh, if you worship in the underground church in China, it's going to look a little different. If you worship in an inner city Chicago church, it's going to look different, or downtown Manhattan. Or in California, and I've been to services like this, out on the beach where everyone's, you know, Wearing bathing suits, you know, and it, it smells like copper tone, right? Uh, it's going to look different. So to help us understand the connection between cultural realities and the non-negotiables, uh, let's take a look at the evolution of the phone. You know, you go back to the beginning of the phone. Here's a replica of Alexander Graham Bell's phone in 1876. Um, now, that thing looks pretty complicated to me. I, I wasn't around then, but maybe Gary can tell us what, how, how that worked. I mean, I don't know how it, how it worked. Early 20th century, it looked like this. You may recall if you watch the Waltons, you know, you've seen this kind of a, a phone. Or here's another early 20th century model. By the mid-20th century, they started to look like this. And you, you young people won't remember this, but you had these dials, right? And you had to dial, and it would go, you know. And you, but then it was a big time, like a major technological advancement when you got the first push button a phone uh, because then you could just push in the number and it would, uh, it would ring. Now, if you still have one of the old lines to your push button phone, you'd push the button and then you'd still hear it go <laughs> So it didn't necessarily save you any time, but it was easier uh, to push a button than to find that, the, right, uh, the right hole. Uh, of course, you get into the modern technology, digital technology with modern phones and cordless phones and um, and then I remember my first cellular phone it wasn't quite this big but it was pretty big uh, I was in Illinois at the time I just finished Dallas Seminary and the deacons wanted me to have a phone so they could uh, reach me and and uh, and it was uh, yeah it, it, you needed like a trailer to pull it around in your car uh, and then of course uh, you know everybody remembers these early cell phones and then uh, this is a Nokia I had one of these it seemed like we were getting pretty uh, pretty good. Then the flip phone, boy, that was hot stuff when you got your first flip phone. Uh, of course, nowadays, anybody that's following the whole uh, global surveillance grid and the NSA technology with smartphones, everybody's trying to go back to the flip phones, which is not, not a bad idea. But over time, of course, the cell phones have gotten smaller and smaller and, and smaller, and the smaller the phone, the cooler you are. And then all of a sudden, they started shifting again. And now you've got these brand new, huge you know, iPhone X's and stuff. But uh, I can remember when uh, Blackberries and Palm Pilots were the thing. And man, I lived and died by my Palm Pilot. I wasn't a Blackberry guy, I was a Palm Pilot guy, but I had a little cradle and I'd put, connect it to my computer and sync it. And I still remember the very moment when I gave up the Palm Pilot. I had started working 
uh, for a company called Logos Bible Software on the side uh, as a consultant and a presenter. And all I was by far the oldest guy in the company that did that. Everyone else was these young, hip millennials, right? And so I was speaking at a conference one time, and we were gathered at the booth with some sales guys from the team that were there to help, and they all had their smartphones, which was when smartphones had come out. And they saw my Palm Pilot, and they made fun of me, kind of hurt my feelings. And so I went home the next day and bought a smartphone and retired my, my Palm Pilot. But so now smartphones are the thing, and now you can even get a phone that looks like this, right? Um, two of my kids have Apple watches, I guess, like a watch phone or whatever you call it. I remember the first time I saw one of those, I was with a guy, and he got a call, and he kind of said, excuse me for a minute, and he turned away and started talking like that. And I thought, oh, my heavens, is he with, like, the CIA? And they finally <laughs> come to get me, you know. I, I knew I should have voted for Trump. I didn't mean to criticize him. But anyway, uh, it was during the Trump admin. But anyway, you know, what's the point? Well, time changes things, no pun intended. Uh, just as the phone has gone through an evolution, so too has worship. I mean, we could think about what worship looked like way before Christ in the patriarchal period. But they would do things like set up stones as markers and you know, sing songs spontaneously. Uh, in Old Testament Israelite worship, singing was a huge part of it, and music. And, uh, they didn't have books and liter you know, pages and things. That, it was all an oral tradition, and so they would pass down that oral tradition uh, through song. First century Christian worship, they would gather in homes and praise and worship, singing, making melody in their hearts. Um, in the medieval time, it looked a little bit different. There was a lot of symbolism. It looked a lot different. Actually, there was icons and smoke and mirrors and all kinds of relics and things like that. <laughs> I mean, there was. There really was. Um, and a lot of churches are going back to that now, strangely. I guess we didn't learn. Uh, and then you've got traditional American worship, you know, where you had ministers of music and choirs wearing choir robes and hymn books, and they'd stand and you'd say, let's sing, you know, the the first, second, and fourth. I grew up Baptist. It was always first, second, and fourth verse. That poor third verse, most neglected verse of, of any hymnal, of any hymn. And very traditional high church, right? And then now you've got the changing face of worship. Now, there's no, it would be a mistake to say that the evolution of worship is necessarily a correlation to liberalism, right? I mean, not every change means you're going liberal, right? I mean, clothes change. Or, you know, uh, is Fred liberal because he doesn't wear his leisure suit from the 1970s? No, it's just not in style anymore, right? I assume you had a leisure suit. Most people, you didn't. You never did. Well, see, you're, you're a very mature man who, who, who didn't succumb to the pressures of the day. Uh, but you see my point, right? Uh, some of it's just changed. We dress differently now. When I first started in ministry 32 years ago, I swore a suit, not just a sports coat, a suit and tie every time, every Sunday. In fact, I remember, we're going to be way over time here, but uh, I remember uh, as a uh, young preacher in Illinois, many might remember this story, there was a lady there that was very concerned about, you know, the way you dressed, and I knew she was kind of legalistic about that. So one Sunday, to make a point, I forget what I was preaching on, but in the course of my sermon, I made a point of taking my suit coat off and just leaning it on the pulpit chair. Back then you had big, massive pulpits with chairs, and the pre preacher would sit up there like he was king or something. And, uh, 
and and I and then I and I came back and finished my. I said, "Some oh man, it's kind of hot in here." And I put my coat and I came back. And then sure enough, on the way out, as I stood by the door to do the thing that traditional pastors do, shaking hands with everybody, she came up to me and she said, "Now, pastor, I noticed you took your your uh, suit coat off, and I just want to remind you, the Bible says we're supposed to wear our Sunday best." And I said, "Oh." I forgot about that verse. Can you remind me where that is? Well, I don't remember. Well, when you look it up and you find it, when you find it, send it to me. Of course, the Bible never says any such thing. It was a legalistic approach. So, so how do we worship? Very quickly. Uh, first of all, we worship reverently. Reverently. You have to know who God is and know who you are, and that necessarily brings a sense of seriousness. I think of Isaiah uh, who was called to be a prophet, and he said, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and then uh, the, the seraphim are there crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and, and, uh, and Isaiah, how did he respond? He goes on in Isaiah to say, woe is me, for I am, a man, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, God was calling him into ministry, he was hearing from the Lord directly, and he recognized, saw himself in light of God's glory. And that's what we really mean when we talk about glorifying God in worship, is there is a God and I'm not him. So the one who should receive the glory is the Almighty Creator. Sacrificially, we worship God sacrificially. Uh, in our study through uh, Hebrews, we talked about, uh, let us continually offer the sacrifices of praise to God. That's why Paul said in Romans 12 that uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. And then here's the point that I alluded to earlier. We worship God personally. Personally. Uh, it's not about um, a formality. It's about a relationship. And Wherever you are, you can be in the car, you can be in a deer stand, like I said, you can be anywhere, and if you're in the right attitude, you can be expressing worship to God. Hebrews says, we have an altar, again, talking about how those icons in Judaism were just shadows of the things to come. We now have an altar from which we can serve. We can come boldly to the throne of grace, as we uh, talked about earlier. Uh, Hebrews 10 says, we had boldness to enter the holiest place. That was unheard of. Uh, before Christ came and died for our sins. And then, of course, we worship publicly. And there's something about worshiping God publicly or corporately. Um, and God designed us that way. And God designed the early church that way. And, and that's what we're supposed to be doing today until He comes. Uh, the Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation. And there's something about coming together as a body, as, as Jeff leads us in song and as we lift our hearts, or as we take prayer requests, or as we interact even between services and after services and so forth, that is energizing and edifying and encouraging, right? It's kind of like the difference between, you know, watching a, a football game by yourself and watching it with a bunch of other Dallas Cowboy Christians fans, right? Uh, you know, I've had to listen to a lot of Cowboys games on the radio just because of my travel schedule and so forth. And I'll be you know, in a car and have to find the game. And, uh, and you know, it's exciting. I'll cheer, you know, and people will drive by me and I'm going, yeah. And they're thinking, what's wrong with that guy, right? 
But there's nothing like being with my boys and my family. We all wear our cowboy jerseys. Even little Zoe has a cowboy jersey. And we gather around. And remember when Zoe first, when she was just a little bitty, and the first time she heard me scream when the Cowboys scored a touchdown, it scared her to death. She started crying. You know, poor thing. Traumatized her. That's what, that's what corporate worship is. There's something about worshiping our God together. It's not an either or. It's a both and. But it is, in fact, a both and. And so... Luke tells us that the early church was praising God. Paul later says that we should speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the model that we talked about today is a model of praise and worship. I think we really would get an A in that area, but it's something we never want to take for granted and we want to always uh, prioritize. So here's the takeaway. I would just remind you, and think about it consciously to worship the Lord both together and alone. Both together and alone. And we're going to have an opportunity to do that here in uh, just a moment. After I pray, I'm going to ask the uh, uh, men to come forward to help serve uh, communion. And we will partake of uh, the elements together as an act of worship. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just uh, this great story from... Uh, days of old when your son and our savior met with the woman at the well and lord thank you for just the truth that we learn about who you are and what it means to worship you and father i pray that uh, as we transition now into the lord's supper service that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you uh, or perhaps uh, watching uh, on uh, the internet that doesn't know you that they may recognize that before they can worship there has to be a relationship. They need to know you. And that can only come by faith. So I pray that in simple childlike faith, if anyone has not placed their trust in you, that today would be the day of salvation and they would trust in the only one who can save them, which is your Son and our Savior. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.